This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in small, powerful doses from the most creative thinkers of our time. The Think Again podcast takes us far out of our comfort zone. We surprise some of the smartest people you know with ideas they're not prepared to discuss. I'm very, very happy today to be speaking with novelist Jan Martel, author of the Man Booker prize-winning novel Life of Pi, which was also made into an Academy Award-winning film by director Ang Lee. His latest book, The High Mountains of Portugal, spans decades and continents. It's about three different men on three very different journeys into the unknown. Welcome to Think Again, Jan. Thank you for having me. I have a million questions for you. I literally just finished reading the book five (laughs) minutes ago. First of all, how did you end up writing this kind of a novel with three very, very different, one reviewer called novellas, Mm. set in very different contexts, but with themes connecting them for sure? It arose organically, I guess. That's the way it came out. This novel is, to some extent, a continuation of Life of Pi in that it is a literary exploration of faith. I come from a background of no religious faith whatsoever. In my family growing up, religion was replaced by art. To understand the human condition, you read great novels, looked at great paintings, listened to great music. But in my 30s, while traveling through India, I became interested in faith, in nearly in a contrarian way, because we're so encouraged, or I shouldn't generalize, I was so encouraged to be reasonable growing up, being a boy, being smart, studying philosophy. And you're encouraged to be reasonable, because reasonableness is very empowering. We've accomplished great things by being reasonable. All the science and technology that surrounds us and immeasurably improves our lives. Nonetheless, by the time I got to India in my early 30s, I was tired of being reasonable. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to stop making sense. I didn't want to go crazy, but I wanted to stop making sense. After all, as a writer, as a creative writer, you don't want to be overly reasonable. Art is a bit of madness. So the magical thinking of religion struck me. And I stopped seeing only, what I still see nowadays, you know, the sexism, the homophobia, the patriarchy, all that is still there. But I saw something else. And so I've continued to be interested in faith, and it's reflected in this novel. And it's in three distinct sections because I had three distinct things to explore in it. Specifically, the relationship that people may have or may not have with faith. The word faith is not one that I often think about, but it's come up lately in a couple of different things that I've been reading and encountering. And... I guess my entrance into it in your novel, The High Mountains of Portugal, is through the idea of there's there's something going on with mystery in your book. Mm. So these mysteries often unravel mm-hmm. or take people in completely into the unknown. As I said, I'm exploring faith from a non-faith perspective, from a mainstream secular perspective, because I think that is the duty of writers, is to explore things, to go against the grain, to to shake people up. And in our largely secular age, and don't forget I'm Canadian, which is a very secular country, and most Americans live secular lifestyles, 
and that's totally fine. I live a, a secular lifestyle. But nonetheless, it's my duty as a writer to explore life. And in this case, I'm not going to explore sex or violence, because that's how other people have done it. And, <laughs> you know, the Quentin Tarantino approach of how violent can I be until you're shocked, that venue doesn't interest me. This thing that most uh, novelists neglect called faith, I mean, there's a whole world of Christian fiction, which I have zero interest in. From the secular perspective, to look at faith is interesting. It is an enduring phenomenon. And you're right, faith is about mystery and it's foolish not to realize how mysterious life is. That's one of the reasons, by the way, I use animals in my fiction, is animals aren't just what they are biologically, they're also something else, they're things we project onto them. And one of the things that's very easy to project onto them, because it's true, is that they are, like gods, carriers of ineffable mystery. Animals also operate on this planet, also survive on it. In fact, they do better than we do. We're destroying our planet, they don't. And when you look into the eye, especially of animals like the great apes, like a chimpanzee or a gorilla, sure. I find it is something troubling, because I see intelligence afoot in those eyes, but one, not one that's as destructive as ours. When I look at animals, in a sense, I see hints of the divine. And oddly enough, when you look at religious figures, whether it's Jesus or Buddha or Krishna, right. you see that very animal-like quality of being in the present moment, of being like a meditating Buddhist monk. So they echo each other very nicely, and I think they're both carriers of mystery. And so as a writer, I like exploring that mystery. Is it fair to say that faith is, in a sense, a journey away from human opinionatedness and certainty toward the unknown, toward uncertainty. I mean, I feel like that's happening a lot in this book. People are yeah, being taken out of their very certain surroundings and, and are forced to reckon with not knowing what's going on. Oh, absolutely. On. That's, and that, that's, in fact, that's a, a misunderstanding thing a lot of, with faith, is people mistake faith and belief, faith and dogma. Right. You know, to me, belief, you cling, you reject you know, American evangelicals, as far as I can tell, have belief because they reject gays, for example. They want to put women in their place. To me, that's not faith, that's clinging. Faith you let go. Right. In faith you trust. So it's the last thing it's about is certainty. Uh, and that, by the way, applies not only, I mean, I'm talking about faith here religious only because it's the most abstract, imaginative kind of faith. But we all live with faith. We all end up loving someone. And that's an act of faith. Sure. And just as in a relationship, a banal relationship with your wife or your husband, that involves faith and that therefore involves trust. It's at the foundation of a relationship that you trust the person. Same thing with any other kind of faith, including religious faith. You trust and you let go. And in doing so, the idea is that because you let go, it'll come back to you. Whereas in fact, if you cling, it'll want to get away. Right, so I right. think the very first act, and that's also the same thing with intellectual inquiry. When you have faith in intellectual inquiry, you ask open-ended questions in the hope that something will finally come back to you. So on that note, let's get to the meat of the podcast wherein you and I are in the same boat in that I have not seen the, we're going to watch three video clips, which are short interview clips from various past Big Think interviews. I haven't seen them before either. They were chosen by the producers, not by me. Okay. So they're a surprise to both of us. They could be on any subject and we'll watch them and discuss. And the first is, oh, this is fun, George Musser. He's a science writer that I know, and this is called Multiple Universes Can't Explain Reality, The Idea That Can Is Even Stranger. George Musser is the author of a book called Spooky Action at a Distance, which I assume is about quantum entanglement hmm. in physics. So one explanation that people have put forward over the years for these spooky connections and for quantum mechanics actually in general is that it's an indication we live in a, a multiverse. In other words, that there are other domains of reality out there that we have only a very dim glimpse of. Quantum mechanics says that when 
I measure a particle, I get a random result, and it doesn't have any explanation for that random result. So if I flip a quantum coin, it comes out heads or tails. And I see heads. Now the strange thing is that the mathematics says I should see heads and tails. So it's always been a mystery of why I see one or the other. The proposition is that actually the coin does come up heads and tails, but it comes up heads in our universe and tails in another universe. And people have proposed this would be a way to actually kind of get rid of the non-locality, that the non-locality, the spooky action at a distance, is actually our kind of imperfect glimpse of a, a multiverse of parallel universes. My reaction is not a sense of awe, but a slight sense of boredom. And I get, <laughs> my eyes glaze over because I find this sort of scientific babble First of all, incomprehensible. <laughs> you know, it'd be like discussing the arcana of Chinese grammar to people who don't speak Chinese. Right. I don't. So I first of all find it suspect because they're using English phrases and speaking in sentences that seem like they make sense, but they don't conventionally make sense, which could be because it's too subtle a line of thinking for people who are non-scientific. So first of all, there's that. So the idea of saying that time and space don't exist but are rooted in big things to my conventional mind, and of course my mind is conventional when it comes to science because I'm not trained in science, doesn't make any sense. Right. So there's that, <laughs> there's that element that's repulsive <laughs> in the little sense of repelling, pushes me away. You know, what attracts me to religion <laughs> is that first of all, it, may, it tells a story. Science doesn't tell a story. Science is about discrete observable phenomena which can be expressed in formulas. And that is true. I mean, in no way am I denying the truth of that. But it's a truth that exists whether I'm there or not whether you are there or not. And so it may be true, but it's an entirely impersonal truth. It's an alien story and not a human story. Well, no, it is a human oh. story. It's the truth that applies to us too, but it doesn't address my subjectivity. Literally, a meteorite could strike the Earth tomorrow, and the fact that time and space is a ripple would still be true. So it's not that it's not true, it's not that it's not necessarily interesting, but it's certainly irrelevant <laughs> to my life. Right. Me, as a 52-year-old, father of four, Western male. And that's what I like about religion and about art, is that to religion and art, I do matter. And it's not a question of inflating my little ego here. It's not a question <laughs> that I want someone to look at me and approve of me or pat me on the back. But life is a fleeting moment of subjectivity. It's really a little blip in the universe. Right. Well, it sounds like I'm sort of a... <laughs> I want to go back to the Stone Age, which is not. But I I'm welcome science, especially that very theoretical kind of science. I welcome it as a, as a serious intellectual inquiry but it doesn't personally engage me. It leaves me slightly cold. It's what exists with whether we're there or not. In the wake of this gravity waves discovery, Lawrence Krauss, who's a physicist who often comes on Big Think, wrote an article that I saw in the New York Times about why this should matter to us and that mm. essentially why it should matter to you even if it's not going to make a better toaster. Mm. You know, at this moment where we're dealing with the petty squabbling of the U.S., uh, we're in the middle of a, you know, as you know, election cycle, how the cooperation of these scientists has led to an almost impossible feat, which is using their knowledge of quantum mechanics to detect something that by all rights, should be undetectable to us. No, I agree. It is a feat of, it is an astonishing feat, this detecting. Right. So I totally understand where Larry Krauss is coming from. And I'm in no way saying that it shouldn't be funded or that it shouldn't be discussed and celebrated and all <laughs> right. that. Right. But I said at the end of the day, 
I'm going to live and I'm going to die, whether we'd heard those waves or not, it would have made a practical difference. Speaking pragmatically, I mean, it could change the very fabric of our reality. These sorts of discoveries can potentially lead to crazy things like interstellar travel. I kind of doubt that, but perhaps. Yeah, you're right. We'll see. Medical science has led to extended life, which certainly changes the nature of that's more life. earthbound. Yeah, that's more earthbound then. As I said, the, the, these waves that they were detected have been rippling for since the beginning of time. So, right, and they'll keep on. So that we've suddenly detected them. I don't know if that'll make a difference to our lives because they've been rippling since the beginning of life. So, okay. Um, okay. But who knows? We'll, we'll find out. We'll yeah. see in, in, in time to come whether those raves, you know, have a surfing on them. Indeed, indeed. So, anyone out there who wants to place a bet, maybe we can revisit this in uh, in 50 years or so. Shall we move on to yeah, see sure. what the next one is? All right. What do we have next? This is more down to earth. Linguistic diversity is language. Okay. David Bellos, who's the director of a program in translation and intercultural communication at Princeton University. Translation isn't a secondary or subsidiary or uh, awkward little corner of our universe. It's right at the center of our civilization, of what it means to have a language and to use language. The diversity of language isn't a curse. It isn't something that happened. On the contrary, linguistic diversity is the nature of language itself. Languages are forever changing and we use language to define ourselves as groups, as entities, as clans, as families, as nations. So rather than thinking of linguistic diversity as a nuisance, we should think of it, we should think about language from the very fact that linguistic diversity has always been part of the human condition and always will be. And therefore, for anything like a civilization to exist, some kind of interlingual communication has to happen, and that translation is quite central to what it means to be human. I agree and to some extent disagree with him. I certainly agree with him in the sense that it is true that languages are inherent to life. In fact, you can make a direct comparison between zoology and linguistics in the sense that all life arose from a single amoeba. In the same way, languages evolved from a single grunt into a variety of languages. And just as animals are varied and beautiful but also compete, languages are beautiful and, and they compete. Right. And just as some species kill off other ones that are weaker, in a very Darwinian way, the same thing with languages. I had, if I may, yeah, uh, sure, I had in. read also that English had been historically more successful than, say, French, ultimately, because of French's internal standardization, the Académie Française and the attempt to basically ossify the language, whereas mm -hmm. English has absorbed and adapted to every condition it's found itself in. That's a very good point. As I said, just as some animals, some species uh, do better than others because of their flexibility. English, which if you think comes from this dank little island in the north of Europe, you know, far less a brilliant place, that, say, than France or Italy was. Italian is sort of a very local language. French used to be more universal, but has been retreating for decades, for centuries. English just continues to expand. Now, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but just my observation being a writer of English, I can sort of see why English is doing so well. In that, for example, just its language, its grammar is so much simpler. There are very few accords in English. In English, you know, a word will vary only uh, in two cases if it's pluralized. Right. One boy, two boys, oh, we changed the word, and an S. Or if it's the possessive, 
the boy's glasses would be apostrophe s, two boys' glasses would be s apostrophe. Right. Other than that, boys, boys, boy, or you know, beautiful. Beautiful is beautiful is beautiful. Whether it's beautiful girl, feminine, or beautiful boy, masculine, or some beautiful eunuch, neuter, <laughs> it's beautiful. It doesn't vary. Right. Then you have these highly inflective languages, like Latin is a category in its own, but you know, like all these Eastern European languages, or French. You know, French, there's beau, which would be masculine, bel, which is feminine. Right. Complex. And it's complex. And uh, like a perfect example is Latin. In a, you know, a Latin sentence, if that were made into porcelain and you drop the dish and the pieces of porcelain got broken, it wouldn't matter in Latin because latter, Latin, depending on the case of every single word, you will know what its function is. Right. So in English, the boy loves the girl. The sense is determined of what is the subject of the object by the order of the phrases. You know, the boy loves the girl is very different from the girl loves the boy in English. Right. In Latin, puella, if it's in the nominative case, would definitely be the subject of the verb. She'd be the one doing the loving. And a puer, the boy, would be in the accusative. So you would know, what, no matter what the order of the words were, right. what the meant sense was. Right. Now that, to me, strikes me as fairly pointless, because yes, it, he or she can write in any way they want, and so there's a certain stylistic freedom, right. but at the same time, it makes for an incredibly cumbersome grammatical system. In, in English, it's just the order of the words will give you the sense, and you don't have to vary the words. So I think right. there's less of an inclination to make mistakes. You know, the common mistakes that I hear in English all the time are anyways, sure. instead of anyway. Anyways doesn't exist in the English language, it's not a word. Who cares? And then, you know, <laughs> people can't tell between who and whom. Right. People will confuse to lay and to lie. Whereas in French, you know, write a French sentence, and it's so prone to mistakes because of the accords. They're so complicated. Right. So I think there's a certain sim bracing simplicity in the English language that will continue. So, you know, who, whom is disappearing? Because it is totally yeah. prone, you know. Whom would you like to see? Right. No one's going to, if I said, who do you want to see? They're not going to say, what? I don't understand what you're saying. No, right. got it. You know, to whom, you know, we don't, we don't need the whom. We get it. So there's a bracing simplicity in English, I think, that is one of the explanations. There's also horrible explanations like colonialism and all that. But it's, sure. it, and also it's spirit. It is a more inclusive language. It'll take words from other languages much more easily than French, which tends to resist. So English is a beast that is doing particularly well. It's a carnivorous animal that's doing very well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily it's a better language. I love the pronunciation of French, especially its R. Mm. And of course, as everyone will, it's a cliche, but there's a lovely sing-song quality to Italian. Portuguese is more like a mournful whisper. It's right. a, this slurred mournful whisper. Spanish tends to be growled. So they each have different qualities, like a different sense of color. But that's just a quality. It doesn't mean that they're, they're worse languages or better languages. But they each have a different quality. So to that extent, I also agree with the professor that it is a wonderful wealth. It's a, it's a cultural wealth, these languages. Just as different the species of this earth are all beautiful to behold, and we want to preserve as many of them as possible. While not, there's a danger in wanting to keep animals alive for the very sake when there's very few of them left. You know, there has to be a spontaneity to life. There has to be a spontaneity to linguistic existence too. Right. Like the Irish, for example, and hardly anyone speaks Celtic in Ireland. They artificially try to keep that language alive, and it doesn't necessarily serve the people who are forced to learn it as a first language. It means they're not as flexible in English, which is the primary language of Ireland. So linguistic nationalism, I think, is dangerous. What you want is a, is a sense of cultural, anthropological sense of wonder at our capacity to create languages. Linguistic diversity will never, I mean, it's never say never, but it, it seems unlikely that linguistic diversity would vanish among humans ultimately. I mean, English may be a fairly successful language, but just as I don't think any predator can destroy all other species and survive, I find it hard to imagine a human context in which there would be only one language left. Not one, but there are, oh no, there are definitely languages that are disappearing. 
answer. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. You know, language of the Every Aborigines, day. for example, in Australia, they're rapidly losing their linguistic diversity there. You know, India, they speak 200 languages. You know, once the middle class is burgeoning there, you know, some will die. Right. And, you know, it's a question of how much effort we want to put in preserving those. Because there's one also very important distinction between language and culture. You never want to lose your culture, because that's really fundamentally who we are. But you can perfectly well change your languages. And I just gave the example of the Irish, who are still Irish to the tip of their toes, right. while very rarely speaking Irish. So James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, are totally Irish right. in their view of the world and what they communicate to us while writing in English, a foreign language. English, there's not one English, there's Englishes. Sure. taken on by so many cultures. So you can switch your language, as immigrants to America would know. Uh, you can definitely switch your language while keeping your culture and renewing your culture. That's another thing too. Cultures Culture move. evolves. Yeah. Cultures evolve. Languages do, but at a slower pace sometime. And language is a means to an end, whereas culture is an end in itself. So uh, my point is we must always try to preserve culture. Language, I'm slightly more, I don't think that every single language is some rare animal that absolutely needs to be saved. And yet, arguably, languages do carry cultural yeah, they do. history. They carry the baggage of But of I said the it past. can be transferred. In a sense, language is like a train and you can move the baggage from one train to the next and still get to a destination. And the fact is some words are completely equivalent. I'm sorry, table in French is exactly the same thing as table in English. Oh, sure, of course. Uh, and yeah. certain concepts are key to us and can be expressed in any language. You're right, there's some sort of arcane peculiarities to certain languages that are as interesting as sort of the weird little fish that we discover at the bottom of the Pacific. Like, whoa, look at that kind of fish. It's blind or it has this funny <laughs> right, little right, right. fishing rod in front of it that has a little light bulb to attract other fish. Like, whoa, that's so strange. There are those the wealth, the munificence of God, to use, go back to religious language, is expressed not only in the life on this earth, but also in the ways we speak. And that is a sense of wonder. But ultimately, it is a utilitarian thing. And as animals will adapt, so will languages. Because ultimately, what happens to people whose language is dissolve, dissolving is they are trying to evolve and survive, and they're trying to survive culturally. There's more I could say about that, but I think let's move on mm -hmm. to the third and final challenge in which we will discuss a video by Andrew Keane, who is the author of something called The Internet is Not the Answer. The Internet Encourages a Pre-Copernican Understanding of the Universe is the name of this video. The contemporary internet is based on a fundamental lie. We all are told that it's social. We're all told that it allows connectivity, allows us to create community. But the reverse is actually true. It's atomizing us. It's not creating real community. It's actually separating us from people of different opinions, of different cultures. It's increasingly an echo chamber effect where we're only ever connected with people who agree with us in the first place. But even more troubling, these social networks aren't really social. They're platforms for the self. They're platforms for us to build brands. The clearest manifestation of this is our obsession with the selfie. The selfie becomes the cultural form of the internet. Wherever we go, we picture ourselves in front of mausoleums, in front, as they say in the book, in front of people committing suicide, at Auschwitz, at every imaginable place. In spite of all the bad taste associated with it, we are, in our minds at least, our deluded minds, the center of our universe. I argue again in terms of progress that we've gone back to a, a pre-Copernican understanding of the universe where everything revolves around us. There's nothing social about that. Oh, he's got an opinion. Indeed. 
Uh, so with all due respect to Andrew Keen, I mean, I think that's a really refreshing antidote to mm -hmm. kind of internet utopianism, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's true overall. I don't believe that humans are more separate because of the internet. Well, I think it's a continuation of the separation that has been happening since the onset of communications technology. You know, in a sense, you could argue that the telephone alienates us because we're talking, but we're not together. So uh, there's degrees of alienation brought about by technology if you allow it to be alienating. The fact is we love the telephone because you can see how the person's warm, hot voice. Everything comes right. through the voice. But it's true, you don't have la body language. You don't have literally, you can't touch the person. So yes, it is alien, but it's better than nothing. And then again, I can also use the internet to talk to my relatives in Turkey so as Skype. well as the telephone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would not be seeing them. And prior to you know, motorized transportation, we would all have been isolated so, in our little villages. So I think the response to his, in some ways I agree with what he's saying, and I'll discuss it in a second. The way I disagree is, you're right, is the internet, like any technology, you have to be a savvy user of it. You have to know that it's not a replacement for a real relationship. Uh, but you're right, it is a way through emails or through Skype to be in touch to some way or another with someone who's far away that you couldn't be in touch with. So I agree that you just have to be a savvy user. But it's true, and I, there I agree with him, that most of us aren't savvy enough, <laughs> right. aren't, you know, overuse it. And we often tend to mistake that it is just a means and not an end. That sure. the point of the phone is that you have someone to talk to. So ultimately that human contact is what is essential. And to have it scattered so finely that you can be talking to someone in Australia and talking to someone in England and talking to someone in South America kind of simultaneously denatures the normally very intense nature of social of human communication. I'd also, it's funny, he makes a, a curious little lapse, as far as I can tell, with selfies in that he assumes, see, I really like selfies. Why? Because I find them authentic. And I mean the selfie where you're holding the, the, the camera, the phone, at the end of your arm, taking a picture of you and one other person. What I love about it is that the very angle of it implies that you were really there. So when he takes a selfie in Auschwitz, it's implying that you were there. Whereas I could just buy a postcard of Auschwitz never having been. Right. He's saying when he talks about the selfies that the selfie is then passed on to the internet, that you put it on Facebook. Whereas I think of selfie as just a kind of a particular kind of photograph where the subject has to have been there with the object because they're one and the same. Right. What you do with them on the internet then is something else. He so. also, I think, you know, refers to some egregious sounding phenomenon of people taking selfies in front of people committing, maybe threatening to jump from a building yeah, no, or that's, something. The problem there is not the selfie, the problem there is the person. <laughs> right, right. Both the person committing suicide, sadly, and the person who's not doing anything to help them. No, that... And you know, those people can exist with or without a cell phone or... Yeah, the they're internet. alienated in some way and uh, they're, <laughs> they're using the selfie to sort of signal their alienation. But I, I do agree though, I mean, I, I mean in no way am I a neo-Luddite, <laughs> but I do find we are, in my novel, The, the High Mountains of Portugal, in right. the first one that takes place the furthest away from us in time, in 1904, the main character is overwhelmed by the automobile. He doesn't like it, but he doesn't have much time, so he gets, he gets onto this, and so it's a tragic <coughs> comic road trip. And I do believe that we are overwhelmed by technology. Even people who very coolly use their smartphones and the internet and Facebook and all that, here, since I talk about animals in my books, there is something about it's interesting if you compare what technology has done to our, our senses. We were born with extraordinarily limited senses. We by far have the worst senses of the animal world. <laughs> right. Like, you know, the dogs have the best sense of smell. Eagles have the best sense of sight. The only sense that we have to develop that is far more developed than any other one is a completely useless one, which is taste.
Hmm. Taste is a useless function in the sense <laughs> that something that tastes good isn't necessarily good for you, right. and something that tastes bad isn't necessarily bad for you. That's interesting. So it's a useless, and that's the, that's the only one. Otherwise, we're very limited with our senses. And animals, each one, each species is to some extent limited or not in relation to how what it needs to survive. You know, rabbits have a good sense of hearing because that's how they'll survive. If you quadrupled the distance that a rabbit could hear a sound, it wouldn't help that rabbit. It would only right. stress it to death because it'd suddenly be aware of dogs and foxes and wolves, but far beyond where it needs to know. A rabbit, let's say arbitrarily choosing a figure, needs to know that there's a wolf, a dog, 30 feet away. 30 feet is enough for it to get on the move and escape. If it was aware of every dog, wolf, and fox 300 feet away, it would die of stress. And I suspect that our technology, which so enhances our empirical senses, doesn't enhance our quality of life, but just stresses us. So the internet is part and parcel with every other technology that has increased our sensorial capacities, whether it's the telephone, whether it's even mail, mm. whether it's the automobile. We are a walking species, not a flying species. So right. flying in planes is discombobulating. We're a species that can't see very well, can't smell very well, can't hear very well, and yet we've survived. And by enhancing us with all this technology, it does lead to a high level of stress. And that's what I think people don't quite realize, is that using the internet leads to a very basic high, high level of stress and to a certain degree alienation. Doesn't mean you get rid of the internet. Right. You have to be a, it goes back to what I was saying, we have to be a savvy, wise user of it. And most people, especially young people, I don't think are aware of that. I totally agree, you know, and yet we are not just surviving animals. While all of these things that we create may be stressing us out and causing us anxiety, we also have capacities that make us different from the other animals. We don't want to just live on the ground and eat and, you know, we... No, 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 you're right. We're far more intelligent. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think that the quality, you know, the quantity of life that we live has increased. I'm not sure the quality has, beyond certain achievements of technology, of communications technology, like the phone is wonderful. All of these I, I use. But as said, at one point, I'm not sure the quality is as improved as we think it is. Mm. You know, every time a technology comes around, it's always said, oh, it'll make our lives so much better. Right. You know, once we get a washing machine, women will be freed from all domestic drudgery. Well, not really. So, you know, technology always supposed to simplify and give us more free time. And yet, the more technology we have, the less free we seem to be with our time. We're more and more pressed all the time. So, as I said, it's a double-edged sword, to use a cliche. Right. And we just have to be aware of that. And um, your senator character in, in the high mountains of Portugal ends up what I would call happy, living with his chimpanzee. And no electricity, no hot water. <laughs> yeah. no, and, and I said to me, fundamentally, life at the end of the day, and literally like the day starts with a bright sunshine and it's bright all day, at the end of the day, it's a dark, more personal thing. Nearly 99% of us at the end of the day are alone in a bed with the darkness coming. We may have someone next to us, but even that person is a, a foot away and is falling herself, himself asleep. There is a solitude to not only the end of life, but it's apprehension. And all the noise and color of technology will sometimes delude you to that and give you the sense of immortality, which in fact is entirely ephemeral. I think thoughtfulness comes when you turn the technology off and you're lying in bed and you're about to fall asleep. That's your true nature. All the other stuff are these artificial enhancements, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to them, I use them, but you have to be aware that they are artificial and they are just enhancements. Yeah, Martel, I want to thank you so much for coming and spending this time today on Think Again. It's, it's been really great speaking with My you. My pleasure. It's been very stimulating. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. 
Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. I want to thank everybody that has taken a minute to rate or review us on iTunes and elsewhere, wherever you're listening. If you have a minute, do that for us. It's a huge help. It lets people know that you like the show and it helps people find it. We'll be back next week with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. See you then. Thank you.